Welcome to season three of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I am your host, Mark Ward, editor of the magazine and author of the back page column, Word Nerd, Language and the Bible, which is also on YouTube. Tons of fun. I hope viewers and readers get insight into scripture through it. And that's the point, right? (laughs) The point of Bible Study Magazine, the point of this podcast, the point of this third season of the podcast launching this very minute. Bible Study Magazine is all about studying the Bible with the best tools. But the study isn't the end goal. The end goal is the kind of love for God and love for neighbor that arises out of that kind of Bible study. I think you will experience that in today's interview. This third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast will focus in our 12 episodes on the theme of biblical theology. And our first guest is especially appropriate for this theme. We are privileged to have him appear in person with us in studio. It's Southern Seminary's gracious and prolific Jim Hamilton. If I were to describe the Jim Hamilton voice that I hear in his writing, it's one of joyful and straightforward confidence in the interconnectivity of Scripture. The focus of his writing is God and his word, and not Jim Hamilton. He doesn't seem to feel the need to apologize ever for viewing the Bible as a coherent whole, as God's word. I love that. By the way, this season, I'm going to ask the same two questions of every single guest. Listen for those two as you listen to the series. Now to my enjoyable, edifying, and instructive conversation with Dr. Jim Hamilton. Now to my conversation with Dr. Jim Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton, can you introduce yourself by telling us how you serve the body of Christ? I have the privilege of teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And in Louisville, I also have the privilege of serving as the senior pastor of Kenwood Baptist Church. And then the Lord has afforded me opportunities to write various things over the years. Many, many things, more than we can possibly talk about in this conversation. In fact, I did search the Logos Bible Software Library for not only Jim Hamilton, but James Hamilton Jr. There you go. Do you distinguish those like the more academic ones get the full name or? Yes. If it's an academic book, everything that I've published has my name printed as James M. Hamilton Jr. No comma between Hamilton and Jr. Interesting parallel here. I'm a junior also, and I tried that for a while. Hmm. And it just mixed Goodreads all up, so mm. I'm just Mark Ward now. Okay. But I su- understand and support your your approach there. I found that you were even more productive than I was aware when mm. I looked into the, our Logos library full of Hamilton books. I also found that there was a Jim Hamilton, a James Hamilton in the 19th century who wrote on some similar themes. Yep. Spurgeon mentions him. Interesting. And uh, I did read through just the other day, your whole little introduction to biblical theology, what is biblical theology? And this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is focused on biblical theology. Mm. So I thought it would be wonderful to start the season by talking to you. Um, You wrote a biblical theology of Daniel in D.A. Carson's valuable series, the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which I have purchased every single volume of with my own money in Logos. And in that volume, you define biblical theology as an attempt to understand and embrace the interpretative perspective of the biblical authors. Could you expand on what you mean there? What is biblical theology? Sure. So 
the, the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors requires that we do grammatical, historical interpretation, seeking the intent of the human author. So I believe all of that. And really what we're trying to get at is, so grammatical, how does the usage of the language that they employed, historical, and the meaning of the words in the historical context, communicate the intent of the author, meaning what did the author what was he trying to communicate through these grammatical forms and these historically informed uh, lexemes? And I think that what we're trying to do is understand their perspective on the world. So everyone has an angle or a slant. Everyone has a perspective. And when we speak or when we write or whatever, our underlying perspective is revealed in the way that we frame what it is that we're talking about. We, we subtly communicate how we're thinking about things. And so what we're trying to do when we do biblical theology is we're trying to ask ourselves, how are these biblical authors understanding earlier scripture? And how does that inform their understanding of the world in which they live? And how does it inform their understanding of patterns of events that have occurred in earlier scripture and thematic repetitions of the way that God has acted in in the past, how does that inform the way that they understand what's going to happen in their lives and what's going to happen in the future? So uh, these ideas, I think what we're trying to do is understand their perspective and then embrace that perspective. So I would say that biblical theology is really for discipleship because, because their perspective is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, and uh, that perspective, I think, also was held by the Lord Jesus, and he taught it to his disciples, who then wrote the New Testament. So all of this is is for Christian discipleship as we try to conform ourselves more and more and be conformed more and more uh, to his image. So I, I would find that to be a pretty expansive definition and one that will make more sense as you actually dig into the kind of work that you do, such right. as your book, God's glory in salvation through judgment, which is a whole Bible, biblical theology. I picked it up a number of years ago, had it on my desk at work actually for several years as I was doing that kind of work myself, and I found it a helpful resource. In that book, you argued that the Bible's central theme is the glory of God in salvation through judgment. And I wanted to ask you, could you expand on that a little bit? And also, here's two questions. Tell me how that that sort of thesis has been received in the broader world of people who talk about biblical theology. Sure. So um, uh, I'll do the second part first. Sure. That that'll that way I hopefully won't forget. Um, there have been a number of people who they already thought that there isn't a central theme of biblical theology, and they if they've read or looked at my argument, they simply respond, well, there still isn't a central theme. So they're just not convinced that there's a, a, a center, and that's fine. And this is probably more on the non-evangelical side? Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. There are there are good and godly evangelicals who don't think that you can summarize. So the, the, the complaints are that it's either not specific enough to be helpful, or so that, that would be too broad, or that it's so specific that it leaves out key things. And, and there are people who think one of those two things about what I've said about the center of biblical theology. And, um, and then there have been some who have said, well, it doesn't adequately account for the wisdom literature. 
Um, I don't agree with that assessment. I think that the wisdom literature is is ultimately t- trying to teach people to fear God. And why do you fear God? Well, because he's going to judge. And why does he want you to fear his judgment? Well, so that you can be saved, so that you can turn from your sins and and repent and trust him and and experience his glory. So I think it does inform the wisdom literature. So I remain convinced of my thesis. Um, but going back to the definition of biblical theology, you know, in a way, as we seek the, the, the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, we're trying to get at their worldview. And one of the big components of a worldview is an overarching story. We might call it a master story. A meta-narrative. A meta-narrative. And what I'm claiming is that the biblical authors were all in agreement that God's overarching purpose for making the world and for causing things to happen in the world the way that they do is to culminate in the display of his glory, most particularly seen in his displays of righteousness and mercy. And I root this ultimately in God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which I think was in some ways like Moses's transfiguration, his moment on the mountain. I mean, God passes before him, shows him his glory and goodness, proclaims his own name, in a sense defines who he is. And what he says about himself is that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, but who will by no, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And in a way, it's like the Lord is saying, I'm going to square the circle. I'm going to uphold truth and justice and righteousness, but I'm also going to show mercy and forgive people. And how the Lord accomplishes that requires the whole Bible, you know, to explain. But but ultimately, it can be seen in things like the flood, the exodus from Egypt, and and the cross and the return, all of which occasions the Lord uh, judges and saves. He upholds righteousness, and then through that, in one way or another, he extends mercy and forgiveness. So at the very moment that he is rescuing his people from Egypt, he's sending the crushing waters of judgment on the heads of Pharaoh and his soldiers. He's accomplishing both things and bringing glory to himself. I love the way you bring up Exodus 34. It has all those elements of Mm -hmm. your title of your book in in those series of verses. And in fact, if there's one thing that your book contributed to me, it re- I mean, the main thing was the title. I have mm. thought of that title mm. countless times. And I, I tend to think you prove the, the value, the utility of a theological idea mm. by how often it ends up illuminating the text mm. as you read. Mm. Um, and hopefully what that means is it's actually come out of that text. Mm. It's not something that you're imposing on it. So I have found that helpful very much over the years. Now, biblical theology was not new to me when I picked up your book, but I remember when it was new to me and I took an Old Testament theology course. And I've always been kind of a little bit embarrassed at how long it took to dawn on me what was going Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And actually though, there's part of that I, that I don't take, uh, that I, I won't take the blame for. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to kind of discuss this with you or ask for your wisdom on this. When I first encountered biblical theology, I, experienced it as a sort of seriatim, you know, one after the other chronological recitation of stuff that I already knew from the Bible. You know, I grew up in a Bible-centric community, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Well, you know, I kind of did that, Mm -hmm. and I I knew the Bible. And so I have people telling me, and my professor is telling me, wow, there's so much insight to be found here in a biblical theological perspective, And and I'm all in. And then we get through, you know, the recitation of the stories, and I'm like, okay, so where's the insight? I 
I'm not seeing it. Right. And sometimes, even since I did come to see, okay, it's the big picture that's informing my understanding of the small stories. Uh, when I did make that connection between the meta narrative of the Bible and the fact that every worldview has a meta narrative, mm -hmm. okay, so now the Christian meta narrative mm -hmm. is this creation, fall, redemption, biblical theological story. I still do at times perceive some biblical theology as just a nice, but not really, you know, synthesizing recitation of a bunch of stuff that I already knew. Right. Well, do you see that happening too? Is, is does some biblical theology lack that element of synthesis? Some does, and and I'll often say, the the authors that I appreciate reading are authors that when I read them, I can tell this person is really devoting themselves to the text, and it's evident that they've they've really meditated on the scriptures, and that what they're saying is really arising out of their own personal walk with God and their deep and wide-ranging understanding of the scriptures. So if we go back to that idea of the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, it entails not only their the, the various ways that they assume and plug what they're writing into the master story, the meta-narrative, it also has to do with the way, and here, in, in many ways, I'm informed by um, something that N.T. Wright lays out in his The New Testament and the People of God. He, he says that there's the in a worldview, there's a master story, and then there are also truths that you derive from the master story. So, for instance, um, from Genesis 1 and 2, we understand that God made made man male and female. And then with marriage, um, he, he brings the woman to the man. And then there's this, therefore, the two shall become one flesh. And so, the truth that marriage consists of one man and one woman in a covenant union is derived from the story. And, and so Moses is like modeling how you derive the truth from the narrative for us. You have a narrative yes. and it produces norms. Yes, yes. And so, so with the worldview, you have the master story and then you have the truths that derive from the master story. And then you have uh, behaviors. We might, we might refer to them as uh, ethical practices that are either being commended or discouraged. So even in, in literature that is not explicitly commanding certain behaviors, it can still be discouraging or encouraging, you know, holding people up as models or, or holding people up as you shouldn't live like this, look at the outcome of his, of his, of his ways. And so you have, you have behavioral teaching, and then you also have um, responses of worship that, that go along with this. And where, where, Everyone agrees on the master story and the truths that are to be derived from it and the ethical norms that are established by it and the ways that the worship summarizes and retells and enacts it. And, and here we can think of Israel's feasts. Where you have all this, you have a culture. You have a culture, a group of people who agree on what is normal. That's how David Wells defines culture. It's a group of people who agree on what is normal and all of that plays into the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. The meta narrative, the truths derived from it, uh, the ethics that are in accord with it or out of accord with it, uh, the response, the liturgical response, and then the culture it produces. That's all related. That all of that's related to biblical theology. And I think if someone is not clear on their own definition, then they might say random things about salvation history, or they might make scattered remarks about 
about, I don't know, themes, or they might just have a list of topics that they want to talk about, and then they do it in a kind of exegetical way, but it's not really organized by this, what you might call a worldview approach to biblical it's theology. It's not hung on that narrative. There yes. isn't a sufficient synthesis, and that can still be valuable. I mean, that, that's my childhood. Yes. And praise the Lord, I was presented with all of these individual exegetical conclusions, which were solid. So when I encountered biblical theology, mm. I didn't have to start with, okay, now who was Abraham? Right. Although I do remember getting to college and realizing, oh, the northern and southern kingdoms split. I should have known that. Mm. There mm. were parts of the story that weren't familiar to me. Mm. Now, I want to call in Jesus not to validate what we just said, but as a means of our submitting ourselves to what he did and said. Mm. So his his words, have you not read? Mm. They have rung in my ears and in my conscience over many years. And I've always wanted to write a book on this, but if you beat me to it, it's okay. Have you not read? He's making, he's making the reading of the Bible a moral activity mm. where you're actually obligated, especially if you're in the spot of teachers like mm. the Pharisees were to whom he was speaking. And in one of his Matthew not uh, one of his have you not read statements comes in Matthew 19 where he does just what you're saying he takes the norm of the story hmm. uh, he takes the story and pulls norms out of it mm -hmm. right he says have you not read that in the beginning he created them male and female right. and he actually applies that to something that that passage you know doesn't explicitly address the mm -hmm. question of divorce. Mm -hmm. So you said earlier this is what you're trying to do you're trying to treat the Bible the way Jesus did mm -hmm. and I think what you just described, pulling norms out of that narrative, is mm -hmm. exactly what Jesus did there. That brings up another question I actually had on my list for you. I read your um, your article on marriage in the Festschrift for John Piper. Okay. And you and I are not that far apart in age, and we're both influenced deeply by him. Mm -hmm. And I, I know just my heart and my mind, I've both been deeply shaped by him. Mm -hmm. And I picked up your chapter, read it through just the other day. And I, I felt Piperian, you know, overtones in there, which I consider a good thing. But let me press the question on you here. I read this and I thought, okay, now all of this pretty much was stuff that I knew growing up. Um, where's the biblical theology? You said that you had a biblical theological approach to marriage. Mm -hmm. What is the difference in your article and your approach to marriage between listing out all the proof texts, you know, again, most of which I would have known growing up, mm -hmm. Ephesians 5 and, you know, Genesis 2, mm -hmm. and a biblical theology of marriage. Yeah. So, um, I think that someone who's pursuing a biblical theologic, theological approach to understanding marriage is self-consciously going to uh, take into account the, the master story and think in terms of the way that marriage is presented across the scriptures. So, it, you know, it begins in Genesis 2, and then I think it really uh, takes on a, 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 an author-intended spiritual application that really derives from God's own purposes for it as early as Exodus chapter 34, when Moses warns Israel that they are not to whore after other gods. Hmm. And that language seems to assume that the covenant made at Mount Sinai is like a marital covenant between Yahweh and his people. And then those ideas, I think, get developed by Hosea, for instance, mm -hmm. probably no doubt others before Hosea, but when Hosea presents himself as a kind of allegorical representative of Yahweh and Gomer as, a, as an allegorical depiction of Israel— Everyone agrees and upon this. An unflattering allegorical yes, depiction, yes. like Ezekiel 16. Yes, and clearly their marital union is 
about the covenant at Sinai, which is, has been broken, and so the people can expect exile. But Hosea is promising, he doesn't use the phrase new covenant, but he is promising a, re, a renewed covenantal marital union between himself and Gomer after the covenant is broken, which I think points in the direction of Christ and the church, uh, something that Paul makes explicit in Ephesians 5. And if Hosea does that in a negative direction, where um, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a, a sad depiction of a marriage coming to an end and then being renewed, um, I think the Song of Songs does it in a positive direction. So I'm inclined to think that Solomon understood all these dynamics about marriage. He precedes Hosea, but I think he understood the same things about marriage that Hosea reflects. And, and I think that Solomon intends to present the Solomon in the song as an allegorical representative of Yahweh, Yahweh's vice regent, his king, the new Adam, entering into a marital covenant with his bride, which is meant to correspond to the covenant between Yahweh and Israel and point forward to the new covenant between Christ and the church. And it's also intended to uh, bolster and instruct, bolster marriages and instruct people in marriage. And I think that the, the religious and theological foundations of the song are what really give the exemplary function of it power. And I think if you take out the, the theological and, and allegorical component, then you're left with a cut flower. You're left with a bloom that has been severed from its root, and you've taken away what really is meant to inform uh, this appeal to husbands, specifically in Ephesians 5, that they should love their wives as Christ loved the church. If, if we translate that into the Song of Songs, I think we, should, we could say that husbands should love their wives the way that the King of Israel does in the Song of Songs. And I think that's a valid application of the song uh, derived from its deeper theological and allegorical meaning. You and I had lunch the other day and we're talking about Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, hmm. which I reviewed for a journal and found to be very helpful. He's raising the question, how did we get to the place mm. where we are now in the West and our view of, uh, of sex and mm -hmm. marriage? Mm -hmm. And one of his applications, and I've heard this you know, from a number of theologians, mutual friend Jonathan Lehman mm. has said something similar, is that we have to display not merely the sort of systematic theological conclusions about what is a marriage and how many people can be in a marriage and it's got to be a man and a woman, but we've actually got to display the beauty of mm. it to mm. a world that's skeptical of mm. it for understandable reasons because of the, the great numbers of divorces out there right. that don't make marriage right. look good. But here's the Bible not just telling you, here's the list of factoids you need to know about marriage. Mm -hmm. No. Here's this expansive story in which marriage plays a major role. Yes. And here's some artistic poetry in which marriage is praised and also used as a picture of something deeper that you're not going to see unless you know that whole biblical story. Preach it's just, it. Right. So there's there's a lot of richness there. <laughs> Amen. That I pray my own children mm -hmm. will be able to see in my marriage Amen. and will be able to see in their Bibles as they read them. Hmm. Now, the... Uh, another question that I, I'm going to try to ask everybody that comes on the podcast this season, we do 12 episodes, we're going to talk about biblical th theology in every one. I want to ask everybody, what is biblical theology? We already touched on that. And I want to ask them this question, when has it gone to seed? When does it make me lazy? Here's here's hmm. what I mean. Hmm. I've, I hear this especially with regard to the redemptive historical preaching 
that I was taught and I'm very grateful for and was a major revelation to me, helped me understand, okay, what in the world do I do with these Old Testament passages? Mm. But I've also heard, in fact, Carl Truman has said this, uh, John Frame has talked about it, and there's a, there's a history here of this happening, that when you know that big story, it can be a temptation to laziness mm. so that you're not really attentive to what one of the little stories that you happen to be focusing on for your judges series, or I'm preaching through Ruth at my church this month, you're not really listening to what that story is contributing to the overall story because you kind of feel like, oh, I already got it in hand. I already know hmm. that the story of the Bible is, you know, God's glory and salvation through judgment. Or as I've often said, the Bible is the story of what God is doing to glorify himself by redeeming his fallen creation. Hmm. I think that I would see it as a complementary, mm -hmm. you know, approach to yours. How do I know when I'm being lazy and not letting the small stories make their distinctive contribution to the big one? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that we can liken something like biblical theology to a tool. And I like to liken uh, these various disciplines, whether we're talking about biblical theology or ethics or systematic theology or New Testament study or text criticism, I like to liken them to tools that we use uh, on our lawns. And if biblical theology is a big, powerful tool, then it can be likened to the zero-turn mower that my family recently joyfully acquired. My sons have a lawn business, and we recently upgraded to a zero-turn lawnmower. And if we get, if one of us gets lazy on that thing, we could do serious damage to another person or to our, our own person or to the property. Uh, now, the damage to a human being that is possible that could possibly be done by that mower is catastrophic. Catastrophic. And I think the same dangers lurk for people who think, oh, I know what the Bible is about, and then they don't read the Bible. Or they, anytime they go to talk about the Bible, they just talk in these wide generalities and they don't deal with any specifics. They don't actually get into any texts and pay close attention to what's actually going on there. That's a danger. Um, and so in the same way that if you get on that zero turn mower, you really need to be observant before you engage uh, the blade or before you start those powerful wheels moving, you need to be aware of your surroundings. You need to make sure that no one is, you've got to be paying attention. And, and in the same way, when you use the tool of biblical theology, this is not an opportunity to, to check out and put it on autopilot and not pay attention to what you're doing. This is an opportunity to, real, to use a really awesome, powerful tool that will help you to make the lawn look really good. And what I mean is help you to understand the Bible more fully and then help communicate that, that understanding to other people. And I have to say, it worked for you in your book, What is Biblical Theology? Mm -hmm. One of the things that really struck me was, you know, this this surely has plenty of, you know, footnotes, at least in your mind, uh, lots of books that you've relied on, you've done the academic work, but mostly what I'm seeing in the book is the kind of Bible citation mm -hmm. that can only come from a heart that's been mm -hmm. steeped mm -hmm. in the Praise Bible. The You're seeing connections here, bringing in mm -hmm. verses from across the canon that contribute to mm -hmm. these themes. And I think it's it's caught as much as taught, mm -hmm. like expository preaching, I think, where mm -hmm. if you watch what you're doing in that book, you're mm -hmm. gonna see, oh, okay, wow, this is how I read my Bible. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think what we're I think one thing we're gonna experience in this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is some of my initial trouble understanding what biblical theology is. Uh, came from, I just needed to be exposed to more of it. Mm. And when you see what you're doing in that book and in other books, mm. 
I think readers, uh, viewers of the podcast, listeners, hmm. I think they will catch it if they'll get the books. I hope so. Yeah. Hallelujah. I appreciate now, that. Very kind of you. Why, uh, speaking of books, I've got a book right here and I will pull it into the frame. <clears throat> why does the world need another book? Yes. Another study Bible in particular, the Grace and Truth Study Bible. You were the Old Testament right. editor. Right. And I actually, a number of friends and people I respect are in here. I had uh, Mitch Chase on the mm. podcast talking about typology and allegory a little bit um, in the last season. But you tell us what was motivating you as yes. you got into this work. Well, Dr. Moeller's uh, sort of the impetus for this, it was his brainchild. And he said from the outset that what he wanted to create was something that he could hand to anyone in the church, whether this is someone with some education, like a lawyer or a doctor, or someone uh, with no education and, and someone who's, who's in the trades, let's say a plumber or, or whatever. He wanted to be able to hand it across the spectrum, and he wanted it to be portable enough for people actually to be able to take it to and from church. He just managed it. It's not, a, it's not like the ESV study Bible that gave me a backache when right. I first brought it to church back right. in 2008. And I'm not putting it down. It's sure. great, too. Sure. But yeah, there, there's a lot in here without it, but you can still actually bring it to church. I hope so. Yeah, yeah that was, so that was sort of the goal. The NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible. And let me just ask you real practically, what was your contribution? What did it mean to be Old Testament editor? So I didn't write any of the notes, but I, um, I think I came up with the initial draft of Old Testament contributors. I, I wrote down all the books of the Old Testament, and then I just put first, second, and third choices next to those books. And in most cases, we got our first choice. And so I really like the list of contributors. I picked them, and I think they're awesome, and I think they did magnificent work on the books to which they contributed. I'll so mention, basically, I got to pick my favorite scholars. Oh, that's great. You know, and, and we all, they all con made contributions, and so yeah. they would send their contribution to me. I would read it um, and then send it back to them. They might look through, in most cases, only minor, in some cases, nothing at all. And then once it came back to me, I would forward it on to Mitch Chase. He would read it, and then it would get forwarded to Dr. Moeller. And once he signed off on it, then it went to Zondervan. I've actually had a similar experience editing Bible Study Magazine mm -hmm. that uh, it was pretty quickly that I realized, wow, like people that I find to be heroes, they'll say yes if mm -hmm. I offer them Logos credit to write for me. <laughs> and I know they're uh, they're not getting the, you know, the money per hour that they deserve. They're not really motivated mainly by that. They just want to serve the church. And actually, one of those folks who contributed the Genesis notes mm. is writing for the uh, edition of Bible Study Magazine that by the time this is released will have already oh, been great. out. But right now is just about to, uh, to go to design. Stephen Dempster. Yes. And just in case we forget, we need to make sure not to forget, his book, Dominion and Dynasty, is one of the very first things that I recommend, especially to probably the college-educated mm -hmm. student of Scripture who's Beautifully trying book. to put it together. It's just chock full of insight. And one, one thing I really like about, I think it's a, a long moment that we're going through now, and I see this in multiple places in uh, biblical studies writing. People really are trying to get the forest and the trees mm -hmm into the picture. So Dempster is insightful on his, you know, narrow level exegetical comments about individual Hebrew words and passages. No doubt. While at the same time keeping that big picture in mind the entire time. It's it's really, can I say, a tour de force. Absolutely. It was really, really I excellent. had him in mind earlier when I was talking about reading people that it's evident that they've meditated on the scriptures. Yeah. And he is 
you know, he wouldn't like probably for me to mention this, but recently at an ETS, I learned that he had memorized the entirety of Psalm 119 in Hebrew. And I asked him about it and he said, it's wonderful. He said, I wake up in the morning and I recite to myself the next eight verse section. Hmm. And it's like the Lord is speaking to me right there as I've just awakened in the morning. And, And that's the kind of devotion to the scriptures that reflects devotion to the Lord that produces the best writing in biblical studies. Amen, amen. And I try to have some of that in Bible Study Magazine. Mm. I was really privileged to have Stephen Dempster write. Now, you told me when we did lunch the other day that you've tried to do something similar with the Psalms, really Mm. marinate Mm -hmm. in it. So if I remember right, you're not only preaching on it at your church, but you're teaching on it in PhD seminars, and you're writing on it, including Mm -hmm. the uh, the EBTC, the um, Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary right. for Lexham Press. Right. And I get to cheat and actually go look at page proofs before right. books come out. So this very morning I did, and I noticed, wow, it was like as of today, as we're recording this, it was two days ago that the final crops, hmm. which is like, you know, the final print-ready PDF was right. was done. So I haven't been able to read very much of it, but I did try to skim it to try to get a feel for it. I want to ask you first, let's let's go to that devotional level. Um, what were some of the insights into the Psalms that come top of your mind and heart after mm. you have really dedicated yourself mm. to the study of the Psalms in, in recent years? So where this all started for me was long ago, shortly after I finished my PhD, I just devotionally, I began to read the Psalms in Hebrew And what I decided to do was try to make sure that I didn't lose the vocabulary and the understanding of the phrases early as I made my way through. And so what I would do is I got I got a Hebrew Bible audio of of, uh, the whole Bible in Hebrew. It was actually back then, 2003 or so. It was like from the Israeli Society of the Blind. And um, and so I would work my way through a psalm and then I would listen to it, listen to a Hebrew. Someone flew it in Hebrew, read it. And then I would listen to the next one, or I would work my way through the next one and then listen to the two together. And I kept doing that un- until, you know, I think the most I ever listened to at one sitting was like Psalms 1 through 20. And what really stood out to me was the way that when you do that, the reuse of common terminology communicates that this is all connected. Hmm. These Psalms are all, they're, they're flowing out of the same worldview and in a way, they're telling the same impressionistic story. So the interconnectedness of the Psalter, which has, it, you know, as years went by, I began to learn, oh, scholars are researching this. And this was one of the reasons I wanted to write on the Psalms was because there was this movement in scholarship to treat the Psalter as a book. And I had experienced that for myself devotionally, working through the Psalms in that way. And so I think the, 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 the big idea that the Psalms are about David and the future king from his line and the salvation that will be accomplished through him, that was really revolutionary for me. This this idea that these are not just sort of random, you know, psychological explorations of the human soul in the abstract. No, these are all tied to the broader story in the Old Testament that's really focused on the future king from David's line and the salvation that God is going to bring about through him. Excellent. And that that just means so much more to me than it would, especially 20 years ago. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking of individual psalms and the mm. contributions that they're making. Mm. Um, 
I, you're really already answering this question, but because the theme here is biblical theology, I want to give you the chance to be a little bit more explicit about it. Sure. What's the difference between a traditional exegetical technical commentary like uh, Walt Key and others on, sure. on the Psalms and a biblical theology commentary right. on the Psalms? Well, a more traditional Psalm might take a Psalm like 127 and, and just exegete it by itself. And depending upon the interests of the author, they might focus on grammar or the meaning of words. And they you might get some context of earlier scripture and where this sits in the Psalter. But I'm convinced that uh, this song of Solomon is to be interpreted in light of earlier scripture. And Solomon is the first of the seed of David. And so when it opens, unless the Lord builds the house, I think we're intended to think in particular of 2 Samuel 7 and the Lord and David wanting to build a house for the Lord, which Solomon builds, and then the Lord saying he's going to build a house for David, the first instance of which is Solomon. The dynasty is Solomon. And these things, I think, are, are relevant as you read Psalm 127. And then I think it does have a biblical theological application to the people of God as we see, okay, our the, the big building project in the Old Testament had to have the Lord at work in it, and the big dynasty in the Old Testament that culminates in Jesus had to have the Lord at work in it. Well, whatever I do, you know, I'm, I'm going to—unless the Lord is in this, uh, those who build it labor in vain. So there's a, a natural biblical theological application to the Christian life that flows naturally out of its meaning in context. So that would be interpreting it in light of earlier Scripture. In the context of the Psalter— I don't have time to develop this here, but I think that the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, form a chiasm that centers on Psalm 127. And uh, in that literary movement of thought, this idea, the, the presentation of Solomon as the, you know, the seed of David who built the temple is is, I think, obviously pointing forward to the seed of David who would build the temple of the church, and then he would tell his disciples that he goes away to prepare a place for them in his father's house, which I take to mean uh, he's going to go build the cosmic temple in which they will enjoy their resurrected experience in, in, the, in the house of the father uh, where, where God and the lamb are enthroned as the temple. So um, I think that this, this biblical theological approach is going to interpret in canonical context, in a way that sometimes is lost if someone is just thinking in terms of um, what do these words mean, how is this grammar put together, and then maybe they just leave it there and they don't think in terms of the literary structure of the Psalter, the story being unfolded across the Psalter, and certainly not the context of the canon. There are, there are also, I think, um, times when, unfortunately, people bring in other backgrounds, like ancient Near Eastern extra-biblical backgrounds, and those become, these foreign worldviews, become sort of the controlling story and ideology that informs how someone interprets the Psalter, and I think that's a, a grave mistake. Yeah, so we're hearing now the fruit of your labor in the Psalms, and actually the reason you're in the studios of uh, Faith Life right now, of our mobile ed department, is that you are teaching through the Psalms for our mobile ed courses. I'm very grateful for that and looking forward to what the Lord will do with that teaching. You made me think 
as you're uh, talking through a biblical theological approach to the Psalms, of all the places in the especially royal Psalms, where you just feel like all of a sudden you've jumped up an octave. And are we really still talking about David here? If you don't have connections from the Psalms to prior 2 Samuel 7 and future, the Messiah, Revelation in right. the Bible, you're just going to be bewildered right. when you come to these royal messianic psalms. Let me actually switch gears a little bit and point to a passage you brought up mm -hmm. when you talked about typology, which I think is similar here, that if you don't have a whole Bible view, you're going you're gonna to be bewildered. John 19.36 mm. says of the crucifixion of Jesus, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in our modern printings of the Bible, usually, I, I believe always, this is put in quotation marks, not one of his bones will be broken. Right. But that I wouldn't call a quotation. I'd call it an allusion to Exodus twelve forty six. You can right, correct me right. here. Um, and that verse doesn't apparently say anything about the Messiah or the crucifixion. The words are instead about the Passover feast. Right. So it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Right. So in your book, What is Biblical Theology? You use the concept of typology, mm -hmm. an element of biblical theology, to show that John is not, in fact, misreading or misapplying the Old Testament. Can you explain this to sure. us? Sure. So the exodus from Egypt becomes a, a an interpretive schema. In other words, um, it becomes a, a, a schematic set of events that is used by David significantly in Psalm 18 to interpret his own experience. So in Psalm 18, you know, the superscription tells us that David is, is uh, singing this psalm, which he sang to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him out of the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. But then when he starts talking, he's not talking about Saul throwing spears at him. He's talking about how uh, the torrents of death uh, were trying to ensnare him. And then he calls on the name of the Lord, and he doesn't talk about how he was in the cave and Saul didn't find him in the cave. He talks about how it seems like Mount Sinai happens, and the earthquakes, and the thunder rolls, and there's fire on the mountaintop, and the Lord comes down on the mountain, and, and then he routs his enemy, and he, uh, in Psalm 18, with the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he parts the seas. I mean, it sounds like the Red Sea. In fact, that, that reference to the blast of his breath, of, blast of the breath of his nostrils, uses the same language seen in Exodus fifteen eight to describe the parting of the Red Sea, and so David is using the events of the Exodus to interpret God's deliverance of him from Saul. So it's an interpretive schema and it's a predictive paradigm because because this set of events at the Exodus was instituted to be celebrated at the, at the Passover. And I think the the rehearsal of the events of the the not the the deliverance at the Exodus at the Passover feast is intended to make people do what David does. It's intended to make people look at what God does for them and and read it through the lens of the Passover, you know, to to see it through these, to use a phrase that I think stems from Richard B. Hayes, these lenses ground on on what God inspired to be written in the narrative about the, the Passover. So you have these Passover-shaped lenses through which you look at your own life, and, and you look through those lenses in expectation of what God does in the future. And in Psalm 34, so all that to say, 
I think when John says this took place to fulfill, not one of his bones will be broken. What he means is this is the fulfillment of the Passover and Jesus is in the place of the Passover lamb. In Psalm 34, there's a lot of Passover imagery. Um, David says early around verses four or five, he says, those who look to him are radiant. Hmm. And uh, this is reminiscent of Moses coming down from the mountain, shining face, have a veil on his face. That's right. And then a couple of verses later, he says, the angel of the Lord uh, uh, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And it's, it's like Exodus 14. They get to the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and the angel move to, to being behind Israel so that Egypt doesn't come near Israel all night long. And then later, near the end of the psalm, David starts pe- speaking of the righteous in the plural and then the righteous in the singular. And he seems to have in mind himself and those aligned with him. And, and then he, they're opposed— he is opposed, and those aligned with him are opposed by the wicked. And he says, um, of the righteous one, the singular righteous one, he says that the Lord keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's Exodus 34, or sorry, Psalm 34, 20 in the ESV. And then he goes on to say, the righteous will be delivered, and uh, the, the evil and the wicked will be slain. It's as though David is saying, I'm in the place of the Passover lamb. And when God brings me through with unbroken bones, I'm not going to be slain, but I'm going to be brought through with unbroken bones. Just as Egypt was slain, those opposed to me will be slain. Just as those aligned with the Passover lamb were delivered, those aligned with me are going to be delivered. And I think that David is anticipating the very kind of move that John makes in John 19 when he says this took place to fulfill what was spoken. Not one of his bones will be broken. And in this case, Jesus was slain with unbroken bones. But as in the case with David, Jesus is put in the place of the Passover lamb and everyone that's aligned with him is delivered. Everyone opposed to him will be defeated and, you know, and destroyed. When I asked that question, I inadvertently left out that Psalm, which is a key part yes. of the narrative. So thank you for supplying that. And it's so rich, right? I mean, you cannot, you cannot understand John 19 that's unless exactly right. you are rooted in the story of the Old Testament, and it makes me just want to worship. Hmm. It it's it's an answer to the challenge against the Bible that I once heard about. I've talked about on the podcast before. Apparently, I have no idea who this was. An older missionary on the field hmm. uh, told her superiors that she doesn't read the Bible anymore because she already knows what happens. Hmm. It's like she already knows it. You know why? Why continue to read? Hmm. This is why you continue to read. Amen. You're going to get more. You're going to see more of these interconnections. It is just so incredibly rich. Hmm. I have so many questions on my uh, list here for you, and um, I'm at that stage of the interview where I have to choose the ones that are most important. So I'm going to ask you a question that's come up in uh, my own ministry, even in recent years. Your book on biblical theology, What is Biblical Theology?, it ends with a poignant and touching and powerful series of comments mm. uh, felt personal to me, um, and I'm sure were for you. You said, our destination is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, mm. coming down out of heaven from God, Revelation 21. We will dwell in the new and better Eden, the fulfillment of the promised land, mm. the new heaven and new earth. But I want to turn this to a sobering question. Of course, you end on 
the positive. God's glory and salvation through judgment is, part of that judgment is the vindication because of Christ's righteousness mm. of the righteous. But part of that judgment is the judgment of the wicked. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about hell yeah. in any aspects of the Bible Study Magazine podcast mm. so far, but now's mm. a good time to do it. Mm. Where does hell, eternal judgment, fit into the biblical theological story? So it is a necessary part of the narrative because apart from it, God doesn't keep his word. And apart from, so if God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, um, and then anyone who does that is not punished, well, we begin to question the character of the one who said you shouldn't do this. And if God says, uh, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then they eat of it and they don't die. Well, we begin to think, can we trust this person's word? So I would say that God's own trustworthiness is at stake in his carrying through on what he has said he will do and uh, bringing about the, the punishment of those who do not repent and do not uh, trust in the Lord Jesus. And, and hell is also necessary because if those who, who don't repent and don't trust in Jesus don't go to hell, well, then does God value Jesus? And, and does the, is the sacrifice of Jesus actually necessary? And so if, if you don't have the component of hell, the, the whole story begins to break down because the character of God has broken down, the, the necessary salvation of Christ has really become unnecessary, and, and then everything that the, all those ethical, so your master story crumbles, and then your ethical, your, your truths that you derive from the master story aren't true, and then your, your ethical admonitions, you know, the behaviors that you've recommended and the behaviors that you've discouraged, well, those turn out to be no big deal because, because someone continued an unrepentant sin and uh, they lived a happy life and they don't suffer eternal torment. Uh, so your story is false. And, and, and there's no reason to praise God because he hasn't delivered you from uh, a dreadful fate. And so your culture breaks down. I mean, if you take hell out, you, you've lost, you've really lost the ability to maintain biblical theology. You're, you're making me think of Romans 3, where Paul raises a version of this question, you know, mm. the righteousness of God is questionable if the times of ignorance in the King James, the times of ignorance mm. God winked at. Yes. That is, he allowed people like Abraham uh, and others to be saved. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? Because Abraham sinned. How mm -hmm. is that fair? Yes. And that's when he brings in penal substitutionary right. atonement. Right. And that, to my mind, central paragraph in all of the Bible, like Romans 3, 21 mm -hmm. through 26. So the style of argumentation that mm -hmm. you're using now immediately made me think mm -hmm. of Romans 3. And I, I'm satisfied by your answer. Hallelujah. I think it's really important mm -hmm. and very sobering. You know, mm -hmm. this, is, this is not what uh, people... Uh, people want to talk about very often. Mm -hmm. And yet I've been finding something similar that if I don't take seriously every element mm -hmm. of the biblical theological story, mm -hmm. other parts of my theology and practice yeah. get, get weaker. You know, another important component of that, there's this prayer in Psalm 83, like 14 through 16, where it's an imprecatory prayer, praying for God to judge the wicked, but it includes something that I think is always implicit in the imprecatory prayers, but never overtly stated. And what the psalmist says there is essentially judge them so that they'll fear you. 
judge them so that they will learn your name. And, and so I think that's always implied in the imprecatory prayers. Bring judgment against these people so that they will learn righteousness, so that they'll know who you are. And that's another component of, of the necessity of hell. Um, they need to know the character of God. And if they don't, they can't be saved. And there's there's the New Testament heart too. I mean, I, I don't see a vast I don't see any contradiction between Old Testament and New Testament. But what I'm more accustomed to saying as an evangelical Christian and uh, who's interested in evangelism, mm-hmm. um, I when I have enemies, my first prayer for them is their salvation. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I've been reading through those Psalms, and especially as I've gotten older, I've recognized out in the world, a settled kind of opposition for which the only appropriate, for which the the prayer for their salvation isn't the complete response, that there's also the imprecations that I can use and must use from the Psalms because because the Gentiles are blaspheming Mm -hmm. the Lord. And I'm like, uh, David says in, I want to say Psalm 103, boy, you tell me, I, I hate those who hate you, my mm. Lord. I hate them with perfect mm. hatred. That's, it may be 139. I'm not sure. But that, yeah, I think it's 139 at okay. the end. Yeah. I will submit yeah. to correction there. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe. quite remember. Yeah. You know, that sounds about right. I won't check it, but I think that's right. I think you're right. Um, there is a holy emotion mm-hmm. inspired by God we're mm-hmm. supposed to have at times. I don't mm-hmm. think that conflicts with love. I right. think that God himself is able to, he's an emotionally complex being and able to mm-hmm. hold those emotions together. Hmm. Now, we've gotten serious and sober here, as well we should. This story matters. Hmm. It matters that Christians, too, put their Bible reading together with that big story. Or it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get everything wrong, but they're going to miss some of the most beautiful and insightful elements Mm -hmm. that are supposed to be part of their Bible reading. So, let's end with some uh, resource recommendations. I want to give you an opportunity to mention some, and I'm going to mention one that you're involved in. What are some other resources that you'd recommend? You've got your own book, What is mm-hmm. Biblical Theology? Uh, we recommended Dominion and Dynasty mm-hmm. by Stephen Dempster. I love Von Roberts' God's Big Picture. Mm. I found that to be really helpful. Yes. What are some other books that you put out to listeners and viewers? Well, I've always appreciated the writings of Tom Schreiner, my my uh, mentor. And um, I really appreciated T. Desmond Al- Alexander's books. Um, He's got a little short book. I don't know if it's in print anymore on the Messiah in the Old Testament. I think it's called The Servant King. That's a really good book. Um, and then I, I benefited from his uh, from from Paradise to the Promised Land, which is a sort of introduction to the Pentateuch. And also, he, he's got a whole Bible, Biblical Theology. I think it's entitled From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Uh, I appreciated those books. Um, I've learned a lot from N.T. Wright. I think you have to read him with um, uh, awareness. You need to read him with your brain turned on and your Bible open, and you need to um, believe the Bible, and um, um, and yet you can learn a lot from him. Can I uh, pause you for one sure. second? Because I did that to you. I read you with the Bible open. Hallelujah. And thanks to Logos Bible Software, when you mentioned Psalm 18 mm. and all of its references back to the Exodus, I had this general impression, yeah, I think he's right, but I clicked on Psalm 18, mm. and I read the entire thing, and I said, mm. he is right. Hallelujah. I want to do that whenever I'm reading. I yeah. don't want to just take your word for it, but you were trustworthy in this nice. case. Okay, continue with recommendations. Sure. Um, um, let's see. Oh, early on in my own studies, what I did was I took Paul House's Old Testament theology, and I would read a section of that book and then read the relevant portion in the Bible. 
And then I did the same in the New Testament with George Eldon Ladd's book, New Testament Theology. So I appreciated them, learned a lot from them, and and wrote God's glory and salvation through judgment, hoping that people would do that, that they would uh, read, um, you know, a portion of my book and then the Bible or vice versa, whichever. Here's my big recommendation. The best thing you can do to grow in biblical theology is read the Bible. Read the Bible, memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible, and then keep doing it. You mentioned your mentor, Tom Schreiner, one of my mentors. You, uh, I, you've you read something by him, I happen to know. His name is Brian Smith. Mm. He wrote his dissertation on the Joseph Judah story. Mm. And you referenced this, unless I'm much mistaken, in your Bible Talk mm. podcast that you do with Nine Marks. Is that a good way to keep up with your ministry? Oh, Bi oh Bible Talk, absolutely, yeah. Sam Amati and Alex Duke and I, we have a lot of fun. And we're, we started in Genesis 1, and we've made our way uh, up to Leviticus, and we're just we're just having these sort of expository conversations about the scriptures together. It's a lot of fun. So, if you out there in Bible Study Magazine podcast viewer land would like more of the kind of, you know, fine grained uh, insight that is paired all the time with the other side of the hermeneutical spiral, that is the the general big picture view that you've been hearing in this interview, that's a great place to continue experiencing the ministry of Jim Hamilton. And of course, go buy all of his books and love his Bible software. You can also get the paper versions, they do exist. And the, uh, in fact, I just learned, I didn't realize this, that your Psalms commentary is gonna come out in two volumes. Mm -hmm. We do print paper books at Lexham Press and I highly recommend the work of Jim Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton, thank you for spending your time with me. You didn't have to do this. And it's been very enriching, and I'm I'm coming out on a spiritual high, which I'm also grateful. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. After a year of Zoom meetings, I found it especially enjoyable to talk in person with a fellow believer about the Bible. Someone had better do a biblical theology of face-to-face -face interaction, because I just know it's better. That discussion was edifying and instructive. I really do feel like I know my Bible better, and I go back to it with fresh eagerness. I want to be more like Jim, someone who has so much of the Bible at my fingertips. You see in him the fruit of the common evangelical advice, read your Bible every day. This is what can happen if you do. Jim is what can happen if you do. Pick up some of his books in Logos Bible software so you can click like I did on the Bible references that he gives and go read them in context. Get his book, What is Biblical Theology? or one of his more academic works like his Biblical Theology of Daniel in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series. I put my money where my mouth is. I bought this whole series myself. I am, again, Mark Ward, host of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, editor of Bible Study Magazine, and word nerd, writer, and YouTuber. Subscribe to Bible Study Magazine by going to biblestudymagazine.com slash subscribe. Get Logos Bible software for free by going to logos.com slash basic. And join us again next week to hear insights into Bible study from the rich field of biblical theology.